0: It's time to get started. Hope you had a good one. That's really good today. I like the spinach in the pasta. That's a good, yeah, isn't that nice? Whenever you like something that we have, go by and on the way out and tell them like, hey, I really like that. (laughs) You might see it again sooner that way. And it just makes them, you know, everybody likes to be told you like when you serve somebody. Um, as always, the uh, tip bucket here, all of this goes to the people in the back that fix the food every week and bring it out for us. And so it's a really nice, tangible way to show your appreciation. Saying you appreciate it is nice. Giving money is, and saying it is even nicer. Um, we're on the last cycle in the book of Judges. We're, we've come to the final judge this week is Samson and after him the next judge will be Samuel which is a whole other book <clears throat> there's a couple of things to keep in mind as through the judges study to to stay oriented so again we've talked about when most people read and study the book they just kind of pull out find a, a pat chapter with a judge you know and read their story and it doesn't You don't see the book if you do it that way. Because the book is arranged to show a specific pattern, which is, as we've seen, the canonization of Israel, the downward spiral of Israel, um, ethically, morally, nationally, uh, even last week as we saw ethnically. And that's going to continue. The whole point of Judges is it's going to end on the low point. And, And that's what's happening in the book. So when we pull these passages out, we get the sense that that all these judges were all heroes and as we've seen hopefully as you've seen especially with the last two three judges that's not the case they aren't all heroes some are pretty horrible like Jephthah and others and just because in the New Testament it talks about people accomplishing things by faith that's not a stamp of approval on those people's lives what it's saying is anything that they did accomplish happened through faith through their relationship with God so everything was an act of grace And that's one of the key messages in the book of Judges is that even in spite of Israel doing everything they can to to turn away from God, he still relentlessly pursues them. Now, he doesn't doesn't, um, coddle them. He doesn't overlook their sin. But what he does is he continues to be engaged with Israel, even when it's a matter of disciplining or punishing. He's still engaged. He hasn't walked away from the covenant. And that's one of the key themes throughout the book of Judges is his, his absurd love for Israel, even when they don't deserve it, because he has a collective plan that stretched all the way back to Genesis. And some of you were here for that. Genesis 15, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And that promise was given to Abraham and his seed. And so by now, at this point in history, the seed of Abraham has opened up into and including the nation of Israel. And so they are still the means by which God is wanting to reach the world and to bless the world and ultimately to restore and redeem the world. But the problem is the lifeline that God wants to throw to the world is itself rotting and coming apart. And that's the problem that the Old Testament raises all throughout. is How is God going to you know, it's like, it's like a ladder with a bunch of broken rungs. How, it's not useful for anything. How is he going to rescue? How, how can a fireman rescue somebody from a burning building when the ladder itself is, breaks every time he takes a step on it? And that's sort of what God, we have in the Old Testament with Israel. is. He, God has these plans for Israel. He called them before they were born. You know, he, Israel is God's firstborn. That metaphor comes from uh, the Old Testament, from Exodus. And only later than when we meet Jesus do we see God's literal firstborn. But Israel was God's firstborn. They were, they were uh, called and appointed and predestined before they ever came into being to be the means by which God's going to reach the world. And yet they continue time and time again to fail and to fall short. They were blessed. They were, they were strengthened. They were redeemed out of Egypt. They, all these amazing things. They had everything. And yet they continued to turn away time and time and time again. Samson, this is the key of Samson, he is the microcosm of Israel. Samson is, in his person, and his story, crafted to be the embodiment of Israel in the time of the judges. And so if we read the Samson story as just a fable about a superhero, like a, a Jewish Hercules, then we are going to completely miss the point of the Samson story. Because it has very little to do with his physical strength. And it has very little to do, with, it has nothing to do with him being a hero, um, because he's not. He's actually probably the, one of the worst judges. Um, if not, he, he, you could argue he's the worst judge in terms of just objective what he accomplishes as a judge. And or certainly the biggest disappointment as a judge by far. And I'm going to read a little bit more from a, a, a scholar on judges at the end of this that kind of ties some things together, but it's important to see that, that, that the Samson story is going to bring to a conclusion what began all the way back with Othniel, the first judge. So Othniel from Judah. He was a Gentile, if you remember, uh, and he married a Jewish woman, Aksa, Caleb's uh, daughter. And he, um, I mean, he's part of Israel, but his ethnicity was Gentile. But but Aksa is the this, you know, we saw the first... Judges cycle. Um, the relationship between the two of them is one of strengthening, and it's one of her uh, getting blessings for him and for his family and, and the people. And so Samson now is kind of the counterpart to that. He's from Dan, which is right on the border of Judah, but it's, Dan is the tribe that has pretty much disintegrated by this point. Dan, they didn't keep their homeland. God said, go, this is your land, take it. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. And so they migrated all the way up north and just kind of eke out a living up there. Um, Dan is not listed later in tribal census lists for this reason. They are seen as, even by the time of the New Testament, Dan was seen as like the cursed tribe or the tribe that rebelled or, or, or got absorbed into the pagan surroundings. Well, that's the tribe Samson comes from. And he is going to be, in many ways, the opposite of Othniel. You know, he's going to be the Israelite, but instead of having a godly Israelite wife, he is going to pursue pagan women constantly. And they will be his downfall, whereas Aksa was the one who saved her family, or at least blessed her family. So there's some stuff going on to counterbalance in the Samson story. And... um, we're, we're, all of the themes throughout the book of Judges and, and even Scripture, there's going to be a lot of themes in the Samson story that are echoed. And they're, they're intentional. A barren woman unable to conceive. An angelic visitor promising that she will conceive. I mean, that takes us back to Abraham all the way. And uh, the, the, a woman bringing a man into her uh, chamber and, and lulling him to sleep. Well, we've seen that with Sisera and Jael. Um, you know, there's, there are these themes that repeat in Samson's life, his story. And it's almost like he is kind of, like I said, embodying all of the judges that have come before and sort of the the kind of final example of the failure of the judgeship system, the whole thing. The whole thing is disintegrated by this point. And so we start with what seems to be super promising, which is this uh, divine birth announcement, which readers at this point are like, oh, finally, after all of these terrible judges and all of the enemies being oppressed, now we're going to get a birth narrative, which means that the person coming along is going to be a new patriarch, a new Abraham, a new Isaac, a new Jacob, you know, something like that. And that's, that's how it's set up to be. And then in the chapters after that, we see just the utter disappointment and failure that it turns out to be. Chapter 13 begins, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. That's an ironic phrase. Deliver, that means to to save. That's what the judges are supposed to do. Judges are the ones who deliver Israel from their enemies. But because of Israel's utter evil at this point, God, quote, delivers them into the hands of the enemies. So it's a very ironic use of that term deliver here. A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites. They aren't even called a tribe they're called a clan at this point because they've just kind of disintegrated into nothingness basically a clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said you are sterile and childless but you are going to conceive and have a son angel of the Lord making another appearance we've already seen that this is the angel that is the Lord that phrase, angel of the Lord, the angel that is Yahweh, that is the Lord. And they'll, they'll find this out later. But this is echoes of the Abraham story and other accounts where, some, where the angel of the Lord has come and visited people, as we've seen, and they haven't recognized him at first. And then all of a sudden when they do, they're going to have a strong reaction. But Joshua did it when the man with the sword drawn. Um, Abraham did it with the visitors that appeared to him outside of his tent. This is an ongoing motif in the Bible. So, you are going to conceive and have a son. Now, see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head because the boy is to be a Nazarite set apart to God from birth. NIV says from birth. Hebrew actually says from the womb, meaning from the time of, even in the womb, not birth but his Nazarite vow begins when his life begins, which is while he's being knit together in his mother's womb. He'll be set apart to God from the womb, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. So there's a lot of interesting information that we've been given here. Uh, this son who's being promised is going to be completely dedicated to the Lord. That's what Nazarite means. It comes from the concept of utter dedication. Now, we've seen the Nazarite vow. Those of you that were here in Numbers chapter 6, we talked about, the, you, you remember that uh, session about the Nazarite vow and what the Nazarites were, and it was when you wanted to devote yourself to the Lord. It was a special vow you would undertake where you would make, you'd shave off all your head, you'd, you'd, you'd make the vow, and then you wouldn't touch your hair again, you'd let it grow, you'd have no, no wine drinks, no strong drinks, nothing from the vine, no f- grapes or anything and you had certain things that you couldn't and couldn't do and then at the end of your vow then that was when you'd be complete and then you'd recut your hair and dead, you know, burn it up and um, basically present an offering to God and your vow had been completed but sometimes certain people in the Bible were Nazarites lifelong they were set apart from birth on the next judge is going to be one of those Samuel uh, who was also conceived by a barren woman with the announcement of God, and uh, lifelong Nazarites, uh, John the Baptist would be another one. Uh, people that are lifelong dedicated and are set apart entirely by choosing before, without their say, before they're born. And there's only a few; it's a very rare thing. But Samson, we find out, is going to be one of those. So the condition is, as soon as he comes onto the scene, his his mother has to. Uh, uphold the nazarite dietary requirements why because anything she eats goes into her body which goes into his body while he's in the womb and so she has to observe the nazarite vow and, and then he the rest of his life will observe the nazarite vow he'll be set apart unique for god we don't know the purpose at this point but the other piece of information we're giving is he will begin the deliverance of israel Now, it's another key point. It doesn't say he will deliver Israel. He says he will begin the deliverance. Even God knows at this point that Samson is not the ultimate answer to the oppression of the Philistines. The Philistines won't be, Israel won't be delivered from the Philistines until the time of David. Uh, You know, Saul and David are going to constantly be at odds with the Philistines as a rival kingdom. So we're, we're, we're given, there's promise, but there's also a note of foreboding is he's, he's not going to fully deliver his people. Who's going to begin the deliverance. So verse 6, Then the woman said to her, uh, went to her husband and told him, A man of God came to me. He looked like an angel of God. Very awesome. So a man of God, and that just means a prophet, a godly person. But a man of God came, but he, was so, he looked like an angel of God. She's on the right track. I didn't ask him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, You will conceive and give birth to a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. Now she added that. The angel didn't say that. We don't know if he said that to her in addition to what he told her, but that first time is his mention, till the day of his death. That's actually going to happen. We're gonna, that's a, a kind of a foreboding mention of Samson's death. She could have just said all his life. But uh, she's speaking greater than she knows at this point at least. Or the author, the narrator is structuring this so that we realize his death is going to be part of the story. Verse 8, then Manoah prayed to the Lord. O Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again and teach us how to bring up the boy who's to be born. God listened to Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman while she was out in the field. And Manoah said, hey, send, us, send him back. And so God listened to him, but he sent him to the wife again. Well, she's not there. The whole time, Manoah's trying to get more information. He's trying to kind of usurp the authority or exert, uh, exercise the authority as the leader. And, and you know, he's, he's even named Manoah. We don't know Samson's mom's name. She's never named in the story. But yet she's the one God appears to. She's the one God speaks to. She's the one who recognizes that this is the angel of the Lord. So throughout the whole thing that's crafted so that Manoah is kind of portrayed as in the dark or at least spiritually unaware, trying to to get God to answer, to to give him more information than just what God has told his wife. His wife all along seems pretty satisfied with what's going on and and on board with God so far. So Manoah, uh, the woman, let's see, verse 9. God heard Manoah, the angel of God, came again to the woman while she was out in the field, but her husband Manoah was not with her. The woman hurried to tell her husband, He's here, the man who appeared to me the other day. Manoah got up and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said, are you the one who talked to my wife? I am, he said. So Manoah asked him, when your words are fulfilled, what is, and and this is where NIV renders it, it says, what is to be the rule for the boy's life and work? Um, In Hebrew, it literally just says, what is the judgment of the boy? And NIV takes an interpretive approach where they have it, basically Manoah is asking him, okay, how are we going to raise this kid? But it's, just as plausible, that phrase judgment of the boy means in other situations and in pagan contexts means what's the oracle about this child? In other words, tell me his fortune. Tell me his, tell me the, the judgment on this child, the, the oracle, the word about this child. Give me the future, knowledge of the future. Um, so you can interpret it one of either of those ways. NIV just kind of gives you one interpretation, but he could be also be asking just... Give me his fortune. Tell me more about this boy. This is clearly a supernatural encounter. And the angel of the Lord answered, Your wife must do all I've told her. She must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine nor drink any wine or other fermented drink or eat anything unclean. She must do everything I've commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, NIV, we would like you to stay until we prepare a young goat. Hebrew, he actually says, please let us detain you so that we can burn until we prepare a young goat for you. So it's kind of a, a little more, it's not rude in Hebrew, because he does say please, and, and it's a polite way, but it's like, hey, let us hold you here for a minute. Let us detain you. And then verse 16, the angel of the Lord replied, even though you detain me, and it uses that same word again that was in the previous verse, even though you detain me, I will not eat any of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Manoah did not realize it was the angel of the Lord. He's still thinking he's feeding a guest. He's offering hospitality to a person. Just like Abraham did when he had the visitor that turned out to be the angel of the Lord. And he said, let me prepare a meal for you. The angel of the Lord replied, uh, or sorry, verse 17, then Manoah inquired of the angel of the Lord, what's your name so that we may honor you when your word comes true? He replied, why do you ask my name? It is, and NIV says beyond understanding, but there's a footnote there in NIV that gives the literal it is wonderful. His name is Pali, wonderful. Uh, This is the name that's going to be prophesied in Isaiah 9, that will be given to the one who's to come, wonderful counselor, mighty God, Emmanuel. And so here we're getting a hint, because there's only one name in all of the Bible that's wonderful, that's beyond understanding, that's the name above all names, and that's Yahweh. So again, this is how we know this angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, is Yahweh in angel form, talking to his people on rare occasions throughout the Old Testament. So verse 19, Then Manoah took a young goat together with the grain offering and sacrificed it on a rock to the Lord. And the Lord worked a wonder. NIV did an amazing thing, but it's that same word for wonderful. is pali, he worked a wonder. While Manoah and his wife watched. As the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Seeing this is like a Star Trek, like they got beamed up. Think of that image. Think, you, you, just, you set out a burnt offering, and then all of a sudden, and then the person you were going to feed just steps into the flame and burns up. That's, that's a wonder. Uh, seeing this, Manoah and his wife fell with their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again to Manoah and his wife, in other words, he was gone, Manoah realized, finally, it was the angel of the Lord. We're doomed to die, he said. We have seen God. So he's freaking out. He thinks they're going to die because they've seen God. Now, they've seen the angel of the Lord. Theologically, that is the Lord, so technically they have seen God in that sense, but not as Moses did face to face and not in his unmediated glory. That's why the angel of the Lord appears when God wants to appear and talk to people, is so that there's still that separation, there's still that distance, and his overwhelming holiness doesn't overwhelm and destroy his people, uh, his sinful people. That's all of the study we did on Leviticus, and the tabernacle, and the layers of separation between God's holiness and human sinfulness, and all of that. That's why the angel of the Lord is the means by which God appears to people. And so... Manoah's freaking out. We're going to die. We're going to die. And then his wife, again, the only sensible one in, in this story, uh, knows better. She's, his wife answered him If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all these things, or now told us this. In other words, hey, dummy, we're not going to die. The whole point of him coming was to give us this message. Why is he going to then kill us? Remember, I'm going to have a son. Prophecy, da-da-da, you know. So, she's much quicker than Manoah. So, verse 24, The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Sonny. <laughs> Shimshon. Uh, the, the word for son is Shemesh. And, and on, the N ending is a diminutive. Like we, like uh, Bob, Bobby, John, Johnny. Um, so, Shimshon is like Sonny. It means little son. Shemesh is the sun god's name, and Beth Shemesh, house of Shemesh, was right in the neighborhood where he was born. And there was a cult of worship of the Canaanite gods and goddesses, and one of the Canaanite gods that was worshipped was Shemesh, the sun god. And so Samson's name, Shimshon, is a diminutive form of the name of the Canaanite sun god. And, and so a number of commentators point that out, and they're like, this is not a good thing. He's named after a pagan deity. But other commentators say, and that's the point. Remember, Israel has completely canonized at this point. They've worshipped all the gods, sevenfold gods, of the uh, surrounding pagans. So, of course, over a span of 40 years of pagan influence and Israel's syncretism, you're going to have things like this, where he, gives, he gets a pagan name. So, so Samson, not a Hebrew name. I mean, it, it's a Hebrew word, but it's a pagan god. So he's a little, little sunny. Uh, the woman gave birth to a boy named Shimshon. He grew, and the Lord blessed him. Even in spite of that. Even in spite of him being from the rotted out tribe of Dan. Even in spite of him having a pagan name. Even in spite of his dad being very not quick on the uptake. Um, the Lord blesses him. The Lord blesses him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in Machne Dan. Camp of Dan. That's what that means. Between Zorah and Eshtol. So we see that God is stepping into this story in a a major way, but he's stepping into a messy situation. He's stepping into a pagan situation. And he's stepping into Israel at its darkest time. uh, And the story of Samson is going to be, again, it's going to encapsulate that whole concept. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. I'm going to read you. This is from Dennis Olson from his Judges Commentary. And he points out some, some uh, things about Samson that also echo earlier stories in Israel's life. So, if you, And this is an overview of the whole Samson story. He's pointing this out. Uh, he says, in the first chapter of Judges, the role of the tribe of Judah was positive, bold, and courageous in leading the fight against Israel's enemy. In the Samson story, the people of Judah simply acquiesced to the Philistines' oppressive rule over them. They show no courage or ability to resist the enemy. Instead, they betray their own judge, Samson, bind him with ropes and hand him over to the Philistines. That's going to happen in chapter 15. The last rogue judge, Samson, is the reverse image of the first judge, Othniel, the model judge. Othniel's exemplary marriage to the Israelite oxa contrasts with Samson's troubled marriage and relationships with foreign women. Othniel leads Israelite soldiers in a successful holy war. Samson is a loner who has no desire to lead Israel in any way. Othniel delivered Israel from its enemy and gave them rest or peace for 40 years. Chapter 3, Samson will only begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines and no period of rest will result from his judgeship. Chapter 16, in all the previous judge stories, it's always Israel who cries out in distress and causes God to intervene. Chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10. In the Samson story, Samson replaces Israel as the one who cries out to God. Once when he's dying of thirst, chapter 15, and once at the end of his life when he desires revenge on the Philistines, chapter 16. In both cases, God responds to Samson's cry just as God had responded to the Israelites' cry of distress in the previous stories. Jael, the Kenite killed the Canaanite general Sisera by putting him to sleep in her tent and then secretly driving a tent peg into his head, chapter 4. Similarly, Delilah tries to capture Samson by putting him to sleep and driving, same word, uh, a tent peg or a pin into the long braid of his hair on his head, chapter 16. In the end, Jael succeeds in killing Israel's enemy, Sisera, and Delilah succeeds in the plot to kill Israel's judge, Samson. Gideon employed 300 men with torches in the attack against the Midianites, chapter 7. Samson employed 300 foxes with torches tied between their tails in the attack against the Philistines, chapter 15. In 14, 3 and 7, so chapter 14, Samson desired the woman from Timnah as a wife because, quote, she pleased Samson. The phrase in Hebrew literally reads, she was right in the eyes of Samson. This phrase is unusual when applied to humans as an object, but it appears to be an intentional echo of a key phrase that frames the last section of Judges in chapter 17, all the people did what was right in their own eyes. Samson's roving eyes, illicit sexual liaisons, and vengeful murder of Philistines resemble the Israelites doing whatever was right in their own eyes in Judges 17 through 21. They worshiped idols, they commit sexual morality and murder, and the Israelites killed each other, nearly exterminating the tribe of Benjamin, chapters 19 and 20. Then he goes on to wrap up after discussing some more of these ways that Samson reflects the whole tribe of Israel story. He says, Samson is an embodiment of all that was wrong with the judges who preceded him. On one hand, Samson is the opposite of what the good judges were in the early part of the judges' era. He's the reverse image of the first model judge, Othniel, Samson also embodies the worst of the negative characteristics that begin to appear in the last two phases of the judge's era with Gideon and Jephthah. That is personal vendettas, selfish rage, reluctance to lead, inability to rally the tribes of Israel into a united community, covenants with foreigners, and breaking of covenant vows. In short, Samson represents the implosion of the whole judge system. The judges have gradually deteriorated in effectiveness as religious and military leaders over the course of three distinct phases in the book of Judges. Samson is the end of the line in that deterioration. He's the judge who no longer leads Israel or obeys God. Moreover, he only begins to deliver Israel from the Philistines, and he does not gain any years of rest for his people. Samson is the embodiment not only of the judges, but also of the whole nation of Israel. He breaks all of his covenant vows as a Nazarite in the same way that Israel repeatedly broke its covenant obligations in worshiping idols. Samson's entanglements with foreign women are a metaphor for Israel's lusting after other gods. Samson spurned all the obligations of the Nazarite covenant to which his parents had been faithful. In the same manner, the new generation of Israelites after the death of Joshua spurned the covenant of their faithful parents, chapter 2. Just as God responded repeatedly to Israel's cry of distress in spite of its disobedience, so also God responded each time to Samson's cry of distress, chapters 15 and 16. Samson's tenacious and often irrational love provides a metaphor for God's unfailing love in spite of Israel's repeated betrayals. Samson was a pushover whenever his beloved cried, begged, and pleaded with him. Talking about Delilah. If we shake our heads in puzzlement over Samson's relentless love for those who betrayed him, then we must do the same for God's amazingly patient and relentless love for Israel throughout the book of Judges. Love for Israel throughout the book of Judges. Ironically, the most disobedient and ineffective of all Israel's judges becomes the best window into the heart and character of Israel's God. With Samson, we come to the core of the meaning of the book of Judges for our understanding of the judges of Israel and of God. So Samson, I say this in advance because you're going to read Samson's story over the next two weeks or so. We're going to see it, and I wanted to front-load that into your reading. Hopefully, you read this stuff at home and not just when we get here, um, because as you read the Samson story, I want you to consciously put away the Sunday school images and the Veggie Tale images and the flannel board images and whatever else you grew up with about Samson. Put that away, and read it in its context in Judges as the last and least successful of all the judges because that's going to then raise a lot of questions about what is God doing why does he seem to bless Samson why does he seem to help him and it's kind of like the author of the book of Judges saying exactly why does he do that with Israel what kind of God is this other gods in the ancient Near East wouldn't do this they would have wiped their hands clean and said you're done you want to go follow Dagon you want to go follow Baal you want to go follow Shemesh go for it I'm done with you but the God of Israel doesn't do that patient everlasting, continuing to have mercy to people who do not deserve it. And so even Samson's disobedience and his terrible life, you still see the grace of God in it. Not because of his sinfulness or stubbornness or hardheadedness or wanton lustfulness, but in spite of it. And that's what we have in our own lives with God as well. We're out of time on the dot. You guys have a great week. We'll see you next week and we're going to keep going with Samson.